This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Things remain quite tense when it comes to the Russia and Ukraine situation. Let's get the latest now on what is happening. Redmond Shannon joins us, our Global News European correspondent. Good morning, Redmond. Good morning, Cindy. All right. So where are we at? Yesterday, there was a little bit of shelling, but lots of misinformation or at least efforts at disinformation flying around. What is happening? Yeah, and at the very least, conflicting inform- information, Simi. So we had those reports, as you said, of, of increased shelling in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine yesterday. That's the area of Ukraine held by Russian-backed rebels that has been held by them since 2014. We saw those pictures of the kindergarten with uh, shelling holes in the wall, and there are reports of whether it was real or who was to blame. Uh, a lot of uh, conflicting reports, and both sides, the Ukrainian side and the Russian-backed rebel side, blaming each other for these increased reports of shelling. So that obviously has increased tensions on one part, and it is part of the, the narrative that um, uh, many Western leaders, including U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, have said could form part of a pretext for a Russian invasion should Russian uh, populations in eastern, ethnically Russian populations in eastern Ukraine be attacked, be a victim of attack, then that could potentially form uh, the pretext for an invasion, be that a false flag or be that true or be, be it whatever. Uh, it, it potentially is increasing tensions because that many fear could give Vladimir Putin what he needs to tell the Russian people that he has the right to invade. We have, of course, uh, Russia saying that it is, uh, and producing videos showing that it potentially is moving back from the front lines. NATO saying the opposite is happening, that the presence of Russian forces on the borders of Ukraine is actually increasing. So we have so many conflicting uh, versions of events, and both NATO and Russia are blaming each other for the increase in tensions right now. And uh, as long as they continue to disagree, it's, it's difficult to see how this crisis can be resolved. Right. The way you just describe it there, Redmond, how is it possible to even figure out what is going on when you have so much of, you know, conflicting information flying around like that? Well, this for decades uh, and, and back to the Soviet Union days has been part of uh, what is often um, seen as a Russian tactic or, uh, known in Russian as Maskirovka, which is the tactic of putting out so many different versions of events that nobody has any idea what's really going on. And once you put out some, uh, shall we say, untruths, well, they get out there and they're in the atmosphere. And even if they get disproved by evidence uh, subsequently, they're out there and people are confused and there's always people who will want to read one version of events and the other. And we know this from the history of the internet for the last two decades yes. and how, how that has disimproved our discourse and, and it is only making things worse. So this is 
extremely difficult for anyone to know at any moment in time what is happening and that many see as Vladimir Putin's tactic in order to potentially set up a reason to potentially invade Ukraine. Of course, we have to say that he and the Kremlin insist they're not going to do so. Okay, and what do we know about what it's like in Ukraine right now? We keep seeing pictures of civilians being trained. Uh, What is that mood like there? Are they preparing for this? Well, they are preparing, and uh, my colleague, uh, Global, uh, Global News's uh, European Bureau Chief, Crystal Gumansing, was there in Ukraine for a period of about 10 days recently. She's now in uh, eastern Poland covering the story from there. She was able to uh, see the preparations that are being made, but speak to Ukrainians who are, for the very, for the most part, are taking this quite seriously, but are living in a state that they've been living in for about eight years knowing that Russia has already invaded their country, uh, both in Crimea, annexing Crimea, and has supported the Russian-backed rebels in eastern Ukraine. So it's part of their everyday existence. So they're not perhaps freaking out, for want of a better phrase, but they are taking it seriously. And they are very concerned that this um, conflict between NATO and Russia They are caught in the middle of it and that they may pay the price. So in terms, like you said, you had mentioned that how earlier this week, you know, Vladimir Putin had said they were going to take a step back. Doesn't seem like that's actually happened. Are all the same number of troops still amassing along the borders? Well, if we're to believe the Ukrainian government, that has increased. Ukraine estimates that it's now uh, in the region of 149,000 Russian troops on the uh, on its borders, both to, to the north in Belarus, to the east in Russia, and to the south in um, Russian-occupied Crimea. Whether or not that has increased by 50,000 in the past week, we don't know. Whether or not uh, Russia is actually pulling back, we don't know. Um, it's, it's very difficult to be sure, but that's the estimates coming from Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine is caught in the middle of this. It doesn't want to see anything escalate. Um, but the Ukrainian government uh, says, um, even today, that it sees the likelihood of an invasion to be relatively low. And I think Ukraine is constantly in the position of saying, everybody, please calm down because they are going to be the victims yeah. should this escalate. All right, Redmond, thank you very much for the update. Thank you, Simi. Bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that things are developing in Ottawa this morning. Uh, Police started to move in last night to arrest some of the protesters, including some of the protest leaders. And this morning, that operation continues, as well as setting up checkpoints in dozens of locations all over the city. So we thought, let's find out what's going on right now. And joining us to talk more about that is Mike Armstrong, our Global National Reporter, who is in Ottawa. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Okay, what is happening right now? Well, it's quite a morning. So blue skies after the storm last night and police are active this morning, if I could put it that way. Uh, to the east of Parliament Hill, uh, for the first time, I think we're seeing officers with helmets, weapons drawn, things like that. Uh, the, the, the sort of officers you'd more likely see in a confrontation situation. Uh, they're obviously being supported by uh, officers in yellow jackets and things like that. Uh, but for the first time, it appears there are arrests going on. I would say that that's sort of on the eastern flank, if I can put it that way. Um, so very much not sort of the, the main core uh, of protest uh, protesters, but, but a flank. And it, it sort of feels like, if I can put it in a, uh, a metaphor of a loaf of bread, it feels like they're sort of attacking from the end and slicing off a piece 
they have a long way to go before they get to the middle of the loaf, though. Okay. And so are there arrests that have been happening this morning, too? That's correct. And then we've, we've also seen uh, prisoner transport vehicles broke, uh, brought in. Um, so, yes, there are arrests. It's hard to tell how many exactly uh, or how many officers are involved. Um, it's just outside the downtown core, but it is certainly happening. Did any? Did people heed the warnings from police, Mike, that this was coming? They were asking people to leave now. Did people do that? We spoke to dozens and dozens of people yesterday, and I'd say that to a person, every single person said, no, we're not leaving. Um, and I have seen, I think, one truck leave in the last 24 hours. And it was a prominent truck, don't get me wrong. It was parked right in front of the uh, Chateau Laurier, and uh, that gentleman apparently was nervous about losing his insurance so he left as he left he had to be circled by police officers and and helped to leave uh, because people were were yelling at him to stay hold the line is sort of the term we hear over and over Uh, but yeah I, i don't think there are any fewer people here this morning than there were yesterday i also took a run out to coventry road which is one of the sort of um supply camps or uh, satellite camps that the protesters have set up they they sort of uh, people can go out there park and have sort of be given breakfast and then hop in a shuttle and be brought down to the main protest site uh, there are several of those didn't seem like there were any fewer people there this morning if anything it felt like there might be more than what i saw yesterday uh, out there really? but the downtown core is very much locked down by the way and so that those protest camps, and there's one in Gatineau, there's uh, the one on Coventry Road, so that's about three kilometers from downtown, and then there are a couple outside the city limits, the mm-hmm. one in Embrun, places like that. They're cut off now from the downtown core uh, because of these checkpoints that have been set up. Okay, and so what kind of charges are people facing? What kind of charges are the leaders facing that were arrested? We are hearing it would be obstruction, counseling to commit obstruction in the case of Chris Barber and uh, Tamara Leach. It would be something. Uh, Leach. It would be something uh, possibly uh, counseling to commit mischief, something like that. Um, but those are sort of uh, the only ones we've heard of so far. But I think there was also a message in picking up those leaders. Uh, it, it does destabilize the, the leadership of this protest. And if you are one of the people who's been involved in those press conferences, standing to uh, Chris Barber's left or right or standing behind him, for example, then this morning you're probably looking over your shoulder. And what is this doing for Ottawa residents, Mike? I mean, a lot of checkpoints that you have to go through. What's it been like? It's Well, it's just starting. Uh, I'll put it that way. So these checkpoints went up last evening, late afternoon into the evening, and then waking up this morning, there were considerably more. So the goal of police was to cut off the downtown core. So from a couple of blocks to the east of Parliament Hill, a couple of blocks to the west of Parliament Hill, all the way down to the highway. Um, And so that's a 2.2, 2.5 square kilometer area. But the checkpoints aren't in that area. They're actually also in the neighborhoods surrounding that area. So there are many, many more people inconvenienced uh, that are having to go through these checkpoints. Um, so, and the goal is to cut off the downtown core. So if you live here or you work here and you can give a good reason to be going in, you're going to make it through the checkpoints. It's not that complicated. Uh, but if you're a protester, you're not allowed in. So they're cutting off those protest camps. And they're also sending a message to people in Toronto or Hamilton or Montreal or Quebec City, don't come this weekend because you're not getting in. That's an important part of, by the right. way, what they're doing. The other thing that I'll add uh, is... 
the highway, the main highway, so the 417 Queensway that runs east-west through the city of Ottawa, uh, all of the exits that you would use to get off and, and go downtown, they're all closed. So you, you get siphoned off to sort of the extremities and then have to weave your way through side streets to get downtown. It's going to be a rough weekend for people here in Ottawa. Okay. Are there, were there more people expected to show up this weekend? Are, are Ottawa police bracing for that? There were, and the, the speculation has been for days that, well, once the weekend rolls around, the window for police to sort of have a more, a tougher reaction, or really to take a, an aggressive action to clear this up, closes because there's just too many people. Like, people drive in on the weekend, families and stuff, and, and the numbers swell. Right. It's, it's huge, actually. You can barely get a, a hotel room in the city. With what's going on right now, I can tell you that hotels are already getting cancellations as people realize, yeah, there hmm. doesn't seem to be any reason to drive to Ottawa. Interesting. All right, Mike, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, coming up in this half hour, we will be talking more about that coastal gasoline pipeline attack situation, what we know about it. That is coming up. We're also talking about the economy of British Columbia, though. We heard from the government yesterday. They laid out an economic plan with a roadmap, they say, on how they're going to grow the economy and fill about a million jobs over the next decade. Now, that's ambitious. Can it be done? What about business groups? After hearing the plan, what do they think about it? Joining us now is Greg Davignon, who's the president and CEO of the Business Council of BC. Greg, thanks for being here. Thanks much, Simi, for having me on this morning. Uh, let's talk first off about this plan. So what, what was missing from it, do you think? Well, the government laid out a vision yesterday for a more inclusive, more innovative, and more sustainable British Columbia that benefits the people of BC, uh, both today and into the future, particularly future generations. And that's something we fully embrace in the business community generally and in the business council specifically. In fact, you'll remember we released a report in 2013 called the BC Agenda for Shared Prosperity. But we're at a pivotal point in our economy, both in Canada and BC, coming out of two very difficult years, as all of your listeners know, And we didn't enter the pandemic in a particularly strong economic position. In fact, most of the economic activity in 2019 was driven by large major projects in the private sector. Almost two-thirds of the economy was driven by LNG Canada's project, uh, the Coastal Gas Link, Site C, and the Trans Mountain Pipeline. But in the last 18 months, the world's become far more competitive. Geopolitics are more complex. And things are moving much faster because of digitization and the movement of capital. And we're seeing the impacts of long-standing issues and long-standing regulatory barnacles on this on the hull of our boat. But we're also seeing climate change. And uh, the consequence of all of this in Canada is that we've become less competitive and we're seeing declining investment. And also young people are seeing affordability issues. And some of these issues are also fracturing our social contract. And we're seeing that daily, obviously, in Ottawa and uh, across our province in ways that are just unacceptable from a racism and from a tolerance perspective. So we've got to get this right. The plan yesterday has a great vision, but it's very, very thin on the detail of how we achieve that vision. And that's key. We can't keep talking about things. We have to go and do them because the rest of the world's competing for the same people, the same projects and the same ideas that BC wants. Uh, and we're just not in the game right now around making sure we've got the conditions to host that investment and drive that vision. You mentioned there the coastal uh, gas link pipeline. So when you heard the news yesterday about the attack up there, what did you think? 
Well, it's devastating, first of all, for the workers. I can't imagine how fearful that must be to have a mob coming in and uh, you know, essentially threatening your life. But it speaks more about the fact that we haven't found a way to actually make decisions in this country uh, once a legal enterprise has moved forward and get things done. You know, it takes 10 to 15 years to get major projects done in Canada. And even though they're legally done, in this case, every Indigenous community along the pipeline supported it. Uh, there's great economic activity and partnerships that have evolved as a result of it. And we still tolerate uh, vocal minorities standing in the way of um, the ability to move forward economically, but also socially. That pipeline creates sole source income for Indigenous communities that is lifting people out of poverty and creating equality and self-determination. And it's just frustrating for uh, my own personal perspective that uh, we have so much promise and opportunity, but we managed to squander it without a lack of action uh, pardon me, with a lack of action and a lack of commitment to get things done. Are, are you concerned, uh, though, hearing that what happened, that what this will do to the project? Well, the project is going to continue to move forward, but these costs mount. And then people sit back globally and say, gee, how difficult is it to get things done in Canada or British Columbia? Maybe there's better jurisdictions to invest my capital. And it comes back to the actions necessary in this plan that we need to focus on. You know, for example... Uh, we don't have great hosting conditions for capital on projects and ideas. <clears throat> we have in, in British Columbia double the marginal effective tax rate on investment of any other province. Our PFT is archaic and it adds more costs. So, you know, it's like anything. If you're investing in your RSPs this month, you look for somebody that has a low cost of investment. And BC over the last 15 years has become a high cost investment. Uh, jurisdiction with uncertainty and complexity and we've become really good at process but not great at outcomes and that's not all of us that's just not this government it's previous governments and how we go about doing things <clears throat> and as i said simi the last two years um the world has become more competitive people want the kinds of projects that british columbia has enjoyed uh and it's not just about uh approving every project it's about uh, a clean BC, you know, driving innovation and scaling businesses in this province. We do a very poor job in Canada of doing that. We have high taxes. Um, we have a very complex regulatory environment. And we need to start to focus on that certainty because capital can go anywhere, including ESG capital. Right. There's over $100 trillion of it uh, that we can attract in BC. And we can brand ourselves as a differentiated place that does things inclusively and sustainably. But you have to get a return on that capital. And it's increasingly complicated because of the uncertainty that's there. So what you know, would... A good example... Right? <clears throat> sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What's your example? Well, a good, a good example is um, uh, 75% of our exports, which really pay for things in British Columbia, first of all, they pay the highest wages in natural resources, uh, transportation, and energy. Uh, they're going to be the engineers and the infrastructure and the talent that drives new fuels like hydrogen and others. But... Uh, the things that we produce in British Columbia, we partnered with the government on over the last couple of years. On average, when you take copper from BC or aluminum or forest products or natural gas, on average, are half the GHG intensity of competing jurisdictions' goods. So if you buy an electric vehicle that has four times more copper in it, you'd be far better off for climate to get that copper in the vehicle from British Columbia. Yet we have the highest carbon tax in the world and the only place in the world that doesn't protect those trade-exposed industries. 
And what it means then <clears throat> is there's companies that pay $100 million a year in carbon tax that their competitors don't. So investors say, hmm, maybe we should put our money somewhere else like Australia. We'll get a better return, but you're doubling the impact on climate change. So that's bad for climate. It's bad for our economy. It's bad for Indigenous partnership. And LNG Canada is going to be the lowest carbon intensity project in the world. But we have challenges around making sure that we can have other LNG projects for shipping and LNG bunkering. And the LNG opportunity then cascades into hydrogen. But unless we can host that capital, we're actually going to fail and lose those opportunities and buy those goods back at retail prices. So what would you say then to the provincial government? What would you add? What's the most important thing they should add to this? Well, we need to start talking about the foundations of the economy. Um, And it comes back to three things. One is we need greater regulatory certainty. We need to focus on getting outcomes at speed as opposed to process that drags on. A great example is the government and the private sector worked together on vaccine distribution very quickly and had great success. When the flooding happened in Merritt and through the canyon and the Fraser Valley, if you had told me on the day I got a call from government that within weeks we'd have the Coquihalla back up and running again, I would have said it's impossible. But people worked with common purpose at speed to get an outcome. So let's not lose that. Let's work together to make sure we get things done quickly and together because ultimately then communities benefit and people benefit. And the the second piece is focus on, this is a bit of economic geek term, but it's Mm -hmm. GDP per capita growth. So we've been growing our economy, but we haven't been growing the slice of the pie for individuals. And that is a a function of uh, the tax on on investment of new innovations and technology. How do we enable people to work smarter, not longer and harder? And we're going to be dead last in Canada, and BC is right on the Canadian average for GDP per capita growth. And what that means is our standard of living is going to fall. And that's where future generations like my kids in their early 20s are really going to suffer. Um, It's difficult to afford a house today, but we never talk about the denominator, which is how do we raise wages in a way that actually enables them to earn more money. And that's where the digital economy is really important. And we've got some real strengths here in quantum and AI, right. AI and genomics. And the government has is, is, uh, identified those areas in life sciences and agritech and manufacturing. But you need to create the hosting conditions for investment, yeah. uh, the regulatory processes to enable that to happen, and the tax structures to be able to get companies to grow and scale. So they become big companies that right. invest in R&D and the next generation of innovation. Well, Greg, listen, thank you so much for your time on that today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I know there's been a lot going on this week, so you may have missed this news, but the province actually made a change in their COVID-19 health orders. And what they said is that employers in British Columbia will no longer be required to allow their employees to work from home. So that was something that was, I think, probably a boon to a lot of people. And that is your employer had to allow you to work from home if you absolutely wanted to. Now, that is no longer going to be the case. They say that workplaces still have to have COVID-19 safety plans, that masks will remain mandatory in certain workplaces, including those in indoor places like malls and grocery stores. But if you're in an office situation, it's completely different now. So then we got to wondering, well, if that's the case, if that means that a lot of employers are now going to say to workers, time to come back into the office, 
What does that mean for childcare spaces? You may have been having your kids at home and didn't need to think about that. What's going to happen? Joining us now is childcare advocate Sharon Gregson. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Simi. Do you think this is going to put pressure on childcare wait lists? Absolutely, it will. There's no question about that. Um, and I think we have to start this discussion by just acknowledging the challenging time that parents have had during the pandemic. Um, with unvaccinated children, with trying to keep them safe, with the challenges of, of trying to work from home with young children um, in the houses at the same time. Anybody knows it's very difficult to work at a computer when you've got a toddler at home. So let's just start by saying families with young yes. kids have really been challenged. And what has happened over the last two years is that they've reached some kind of new normal, where perhaps it's a hybrid of grandparent care and working from home and some child care. Um, and so that's been difficult to find a new normal, but, but a lot of people have, and they've become accustomed to having some flexibility at home. Now, going back to offices where people have been able to do that same kind of work from home is going to put a lot of um, stress, more stress on the childcare system that we have. What kind of wait lists are there out there now? What have you heard? Well, the wait lists are crazy long. They have been for, for decades. You can put your name on a list when you're pregnant and not find out if you get a space until your child is in grade two, that kind of crazy. So what this really means is that we're going to be looking to the BC budget next week because we heard in the economic update yesterday, uh, Minister Ravi Collin say, and I'll quote, affordable childcare is our competitive advantage in BC. So we're going to be looking for childcare to actually be affordable and for the new spaces to be confirmed that have been promised in the bilateral agreement with the federal government. So if, if childcare is BC's competitive advantage, families are going back to work and need access to more affordable childcare, quality childcare. It means that BC's got to start investing in early childhood educators, the people who actually work in programs, because Spaces are sitting empty in some cases because there's nobody to work in those programs. So uh, this is a hmm. this is a big problem. So do you think that? Then, so what you're saying is there is capacity in the system if we could just find more employees. Well, there are some some spaces that are sitting empty in parts of the province, but not anywhere near enough to meet the demand. There are still um, long, long waiting lists, and so this has to be a combina- combination of of approaches. We've got to invest in early childhood educators um, in their compensation, opening up post-secondary seats to get people trained to work in childcare. We have to physically build more spaces run by school districts and municipalities. And we have to make sure the childcare we do have and all the new childcare we build is affordable. So there's a lot that has to happen to really serve the needs of BC families. Okay, so what needs to happen then soon? Because if, if this is, if employers are probably already thinking about how they can get employees back into the office. So I think the key is for employers to offer some flexibility uh, if they're in, expecting employees to come back into the workplace. Offer them the, that hybrid model to continue with. Um, offer them some support with their childcare fees. We need employers to be better advocates for a childcare system so that when we see that budget next week, we start to see investment in every elementary school across the province offering school-age care. Nonprofits offered 
um, funds for expansions, for more childcare spaces, investing in better wages for early child educators. There's things that employers can advocate for, but give parents that flexibility that they still need, that, that hybrid model perhaps, um, to accommodate their childcare needs. And even if we open up childcare spaces like early childhood education training, how long would it get to get those people into the system? It takes a year at a minimum to get the, the basic ACE um, certification. So that's, that's the starting place. But then, of course, we want people over the years to, to be uh, more educated to, for this important work. So governments, you know, they have started, to, there has been measurable progress. We have to acknowledge that. But if a whole lot of parents are heading back into the office in the, the weeks and months to come, it is going to put a strain on the childcare system. Are there particular areas, Sharon, that you're hearing it's, it's even worse? Well, I've heard from Vancouver Island people say that they, the crisis in childcare has never been worse, that the waiting lists um, in some, some areas have never been longer, the difficulty in hiring early childhood educators has, has never been worse because of the pandemic, um, because people are worried to work with unvaccinated children. Um, it is a very difficult, challenging time, and so we we really need the provincial government to continue to prioritize childcare as they have it in the in the last few years. They they need to maintain that and make sure they use this three point two billion dollars from the federal government very wisely to build the system that families can depend on. All right, Sharon, thanks for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Bye for now. Bye. That's Sharon Gregson, child care advocate, talking about our child care system. And the reason why we're talking about that is you may have missed this in the news, but Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry talked this week and amended her order on workplace safety to support the transition of employees back into the workplace. Essentially, employers are no longer going to be required to allow you to work from home. That was something that was more flexible. Under a previous version of that order, employers had the flexibility to let staff work from home if possible, given the nature of the work involved. Now that's changed. So the employer might, you know, your boss may very well say, you know what, I want everybody back in the office. Time to get back in the office. So think about that. Multiply it over and over and over again. If that's happening in a lot of workplaces to a lot of employees, all of a sudden there's a lot more people out there who might be needing childcare. Now, what is your situation on that? If you Are you on a waiting list somewhere? Because I know a bunch of people who are, and it's been very difficult to find someone.